Welcome to Howden's podcast, Fortune Favors the Brave. We all take risks in our everyday life and business is no different. In this podcast, we're speaking to the experts about a topical challenge or issue and what business leaders can do to overcome it. Hello and welcome back to the second part of this Fortune Favours the Brave podcast on regulatory issues affecting professionals. Again, I'm joined by my three guests, Alexa Jones and Neil Innes of Mills and Reeve and Tim Gray. As you recall, in the first part, we covered off the history of regulation, what drives regulation, political and social pressures and the challenges facing regulators. And we also touched briefly on corporate investigations. So in this second part, we're going to talk a little bit about the interplay between regulatory investigations and professional indemnity claims. And hopefully, following on from that, we're going to give you some practical pointers as to how you deal with those regulatory issues if you should be forced to deal with them. So I'm going to just turn briefly to you now, Tim, if I can. How do you see it working in terms of the interplay between uh, professional negligence claims and regulatory issues? I think there is an overlap, a very clear overlap, um, but very often it's misunderstood from one perspective or the other. And claimants or potential claimants and defendants in those professional negligence matters and complainants and members or registrants in the regulatory sphere often confuse the two and conflate the two in the wrong in the wrong way. It's understandable why that can happen because if you go back to the basics of regulatory and professional discipline, one of the things that's being looked at in most contexts is the question of misconduct. So in order to prove a case, a regulator will have to demonstrate the facts are made out, demonstrate those facts amount to misconduct, and thereafter that uh, either there is current impairment if you're in the world of healthcare, or alternatively, if you're not, that a sanction is necessary to protect the public or otherwise uphold the public interest. The difficulty with that is that the case law has long told us that misconduct is more than mere negligence. And so the trap that a lot of people fall into is they think, well, if I'm in front of the regulator and they find misconduct, then necessarily I am guilty of negligence because it must be more than mere negligence. The case law on that point is a little bit more sophisticated. And from the negligence side of things, you can't equate one with the other. But there's no question that having a finding in one context is something that will bolster one's position in the other context. And so very often you do find that um, claimants will go to the regulator first, try and get something from the regulator, which is usually free from their point of view, before beginning proceedings in, in other contexts. But it's it's something that one can't give a simple answer to what's going to be the effect of one on the other. I agree entirely. And, and we're seeing more and more of this, I think. And they are different. Because um, even if there is a regulatory finding against somebody, that that establishes potentially, or, or certainly goes a very long way evidentially to help um, in establishing that there's been, in the professional negligence sense, a breach of duty. Um, but actually, I mean, we all know with professional negligence claims that there is often a breach of duty, and you spend most of your time worrying about, I mean, I say to most people, so what? You know, what are the causation and quantum issues that flow from that? And the fact of the regulatory finding does not equate to, therefore, there are damages that are recoverable. But it is so much harder to deal with. And I think, again, I said it years ago, um, this was never really a factor. Now it's a factor that you have to think about in so many claims. Um, And only this week I was at a mediation where the clear implication that was being put to our client 
in a professional negligence, so the civil claim, was that if the resolution that that person would contribute to wasn't sufficient, that a regulatory complaint was going to be made. So that, that wasn't being used to bolster the claim, but it's undoubtedly being used as a lever to try and encourage somebody to contribute financially. It's not something that I would encourage or actually particularly think is a sensible thing to do, but that's no longer uncommon in a way that it never used to be. And, and, and I think you're right that cost is a real factor. We know how expensive litigation is. You know, for, for smaller claims, we've got the fixed recoverable schemes coming in, or it has come in, um, and we don't quite know how that's going to work for claimants, lawyers, and things like that. Um, if they can go and get the investigation done by somebody else, and of course, there are issues that the investigation helps because a regulator is able to ask for material that you aren't necessarily able to get as a potential party. And, and if that material can be drawn out in the regulatory process, it's there and available to be used. Um, certainly, we're, we're aware of you know, requests for documents from the regulator more often than there ever was before from non-parties, effectively phishing. Um, and so that, that free, free investigation has got to be helpful. Um, and, and it does put the professional at risk. Um, and your admi any admissions you make, you have to have half an eye on, is somebody at a regulatory level going to be interested in this? I'd certainly echo that as well. I'm certainly seeing a, a great deal more regulatory investigations as a precursor to a professional indemnity claim. And it becomes much more difficult because there's such a personal element to it, isn't, it? isn't there, when there's a, a regulatory investigation as well? And I guess that brings me to the question, Tim, you know, how do you deal with regulatory issues differently to professional indemnity claims, to civil claims? Well, I think segueing immediately off that point um, is the sort of converse, what happens if there's a professional negligence claim that's been successful into the regulatory sphere? And of course, it doesn't work in quite the same way, although mm. I'm seeing, and I think most of my colleagues are seeing, an increase in that happening. But there's case law, starting with a case I referred to in our last episode, Spackman, through to other cases, Squire and, and the principals in a case called Hollington and Heathorne, that judgments of one court are not necessarily either admissible and certainly not relevant in front of the regulator. So regulators will, will tend not to look at those. The consequence of that for how one deals with regulatory things is, first of all, to look at what's actually admissible before the regulator and what you need to be doing if you're an individual who is being regulated and being investigated. The first and obvious thing to do is to contact your indemnity provider as soon as possible. That That's one of the practical steps that obviously has to be taken. But the second thing I would always recommend, and I, by the time it gets to me through somebody like, like you, Neil, through Neil or, or, or Alexa to me, this has usually happened, but occasionally not, is to ask the individual to be very, very honest with themselves. Because there's nothing worse than having somebody in front of their regulator who is denying something, which is very obviously the case, and then doesn't benefit from having developed that insight that is necessary to remediate any issues in their practice. And if, for example, somebody has done something wrong, it doesn't need to be the end of their practice, it doesn't need to be the end of their career, if they're able to demonstrate that they've learned from those mistakes, they've developed that insight and they're on that journey to becoming a better professional. Because regulation is not just about getting rid of people from, from the, the profession. It's about making them better at what they do. Yeah, I think that's that's right, Tim. Neil and I deal with both, you know, the regulatory issues as well as the civil claims. And they can be quite different in how you approach them. 
that regulatory complaint, you, you might have to, you know, look at it in a more rounded view, um, you know, responding perhaps with more empathy than you might on the civil matter. Equally, you might need a really robust response, um, you know, and, and it's trying to understand what actually is that complainant trying to achieve here by bringing the complaint. Um, and, and by doing that, you may be able to head off that civil claim in due course. And I think really importantly, just to come in on, on, on that point, the SRA and the GMC on both sides of that sort of equation of regulators we have, have now in their guidance made it very clear that offering an apology is not an admission of liability in mm. regulatory proceedings. I don't know how that will play out in professional negligence, but um, in terms of the regulator, when their guidance says, if you've made a mistake, your duty of candour is to apologise, that doesn't render you any more liable uh, within within the regulatory sphere for blame or culpability. Yeah, I know uh, that will certainly make insurers wince, the idea mm. of offering an apology. <laughs> Thanks both. And I just want to pick up on a point you were making earlier, Tim, and just emphasise how important it is to consider whether you do have the right insurance cover in place for regulatory issues. Even if you were afforded the protection of uh, minimum terms by your, your profession or your regulator, you don't necessarily have cover for all types of regulatory issues. So it's really important to investigate that and make sure you do have cover and see if you can put that in place and where perhaps whether you need other policies, including directors and officers cover as well. Just something to bear in mind because the cost of regulatory investigations can be absolutely enormous. Um, Earlier on, Alexa mentioned the headline figures in relation to corporate investigations. Well, sitting behind that are the costs, the defence costs of dealing with those issues, but all the, also the costs of the regulator themselves. And they can suddenly mount up into the hundreds of thousands or potentially even the millions, depending on the size of the matter. So it's always worth bearing in mind, have you got the right insurances in place for that? And I guess that that neatly leads me into the final area we were going to cover off as part of this discussion is like, how do professionals guard against getting into hot water with the regulators? What do they do to protect themselves? And what are the best steps they can they can take once they're in that situation where they're being investigated? Tim, could I perhaps turn to you first on that topic? I think it, it feeds neatly, I suppose, off that idea of being scrupulously honest with yourself as an individual and understanding where you may have gone wrong. What, in my anecdotal experience, tends to be the case is that the regulators will leap to certain conclusions, which may be justified, they may not, but they'll leap to the worst conclusions. And it may be that there is a, an element of truth in what's being suggested. And if you're able to identify that element of truth for yourself, and through your insurers and lawyers, you're able to litigate that point, then it enables the structure of your defence to be far more resilient. What I mean by that is, if there is an element of the complaint that's made against you that is just far-fetched and simply not right, if you've acknowledged the kernel of truth that may exist, dealing with the element that is not right is far, far easier. The worst thing in the world is if you're found to perhaps not have been as scrupulously honest about your conduct on the day of the hearing or when you're giving your evidence, because then everything you say is thrown uh, in, into jeopardy and your veracity and credibility is, is open to question. The other thing to do is obviously to be very careful about how you document everything you're doing. Record keeping is your friend. Uh, keeping good records, whatever your business, is really, really important because every time a client or disgruntled individual wants to make a complaint, they can make one. And if you're able to say, well, this didn't happen in this way and here are my records, most clients don't keep records the same way as you do. 
And that's really, really important. So those are my two top tips. There are a number of other things that I'm sure Neil and Alexa will. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the paperwork one is absolutely key, isn't it? That missing attendance note or whatever it is, is always the problem when it comes to litigation, isn't it? But there are also other issues in relation to, you know, staff potentially or the clients that you choose to deal with as well. It's always really important to look at your clients and say, are they the right kind of client for your business? If they've already been through three sets of professional advisors, you know, why have they already been through three sets of professional advisors? I suspect you've got some good views here, Neil and Alexa. Yeah, well, I'm, I was going to pick up on what Tim said, because I think that really highlights um, and for for this, the difference in how you deal with things, especially that mm. um, you've got to be completely, you, you, you are proactive, that awful word, rather than reactive mm. in regulatory stuff. So Tim and I have worked on a matter where the SRA were looking at a firm. Um, and they, they had some real concerns about what, what that firm had done over stuff. Now, that firm did have decent records. And what we actually had to do, and it's a very different mindset from responding to a claim where you present effectively all that you need to, to try and meet the claim, and you don't necessarily lead until you're obliged to with other things. We actually provided huge amounts of material to the SRA about everything the firm had done, not only in relation to the criticism, but what they had done since it became came to light to stop it ever happening again. What training they'd done for people, what these things. And this feeds into, you're talking about the cost issues. It's a very expensive way of doing things compared to a professional negligence claim. But in that, they were able to persuade the SRA not to actually pursue the matter any further. It came to a resolution at a very early stage. Um, and, and, and I think that that just shows you have to, everything has to be different and it makes it more expensive and front-loaded in terms of costs. So you, you can't do these things um, on the cheap if you are wanting to actually prevent it escalating. Um, and, and so I, I couldn't echo more that the ability to document, to show what you're doing is really important. And I think that's a really key point, isn't it? I think this, there's this perception amongst regulated professionals that their regulator is sort of out to get them or something. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true at all. I think the regulator is looking for a reason not to have to take things forward. And if you can demonstrate and persuade that prospectively things are better and you've dealt with the issues that have been identified through whatever issue was, was put before them, then they're very happy to accept that if they can. But if you haven't met those needs, then then of course they have to do something more draconian. But then, of course, we've also got these other issues that the the, the, the regulators and professionals are grappling with. You know, these conduct issues, sexual harassment in the workplace. You know, a whole different approach needs to be applied, doesn't it, by policies and procedures by professionals and firms. You know, it's 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 more than you know, having that uh, supervision policy in place and your open door policy. You know, it's making sure that you have a truly respectful workplace mm. and that you have you know the ability to whistleblow and 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 people mm. can share concerns about colleagues or people they're working with um you know this is it's, it's a whole new arena that we that professionals have to really really get to get get a grip of I think that cultural point is a really important one, having a culture where people can come forward, you know, and be supportive of each other when something's mm -hmm. gone wrong, because obviously these issues have a very personal dimension to them as well. And particularly now, m most of us are working, you know, in a hybrid lives, working from home part of the time. I think some of those issues become particularly intense when somebody's at home half the time or not coming into the office and not discussing some of those issues that might come up. I think as much as anything, it's about living it, paying lip service to procedures and, and documents that you may have on a hard drive somewhere. Um, or in the intranet, it's not going to cut it with regulators anymore. They're, they're wise to that. 
And I would echo the point you made as well about being cautious who you take on as clients as well. That that a bit that willingness to that safe space within work to be able to highlight things. Also, culturally, it's very sensible to recognise that there are some clients for whom the flags are there that you might think about whether you really want them to be your clients. Saying no is really important for a professional business to be able to go, not sure that that's wise. Pass the problem to somebody else is never a bad tactic. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And, and just to sort of wrap up on, on that point is, that, you know, if you do have insurance that will cover you for these events, make sure you get in touch with your insurers and get the support from professionals like yourselves, you know, to help with that issue. I mean, it can really help, particularly if you get to grips with an issue early on. You can nip it in the bud potentially and draw a conclusion much faster than you might otherwise. Absolutely. And I think that just about brings us to a conclusion. Thank you all for listening to our podcast and a particular thank you to our guests Alexa Jones, Neil Innes and Tim Grave. If you did have any questions or queries on the subjects we've discussed, please do just get in touch with us. Our details are on our websites and they'll be attached to the podcast information as well. But otherwise, thank you very much for joining us and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fortune Favours the Brave from Howden. To hear more episodes and subscribe to our channel, search Fortune Favours the Brave on your favourite podcast app.